Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. It's my pleasure. Welcome back, Howard Penrose. Welcome back, Howard. Hi, thank you for having me again. So, Howard, for those that may not be familiar with you, you founded MotorDoc, and you're heavily involved in SMRP, IEEE, to mention a few of the things. Although, super brief, can you give us a intro to yourself, your background, what you're currently doing? Uh, I'll try to keep it very short. Um, have been involved in electric machines and related systems for my entire career, starting with the Navy, um, and then a short st- in the repair business, and then a short stint at the University of Illinois. Uh, where I taught and um, also ran the energy resources. And most people know me after I entered in uh, the test equipment industry with uh, Alltest back in 2000, 1999, actually. And then uh, then I went independent in 2004, then went back to the first repair shop when the economy went south, and then uh, restarted that company and named it after the nickname my uh captain gave me when I was on a, on a carrier back in the 1980s, uh, which was motor dock. So, um, there's a long story behind that, that, that people can go back to our previous <laughs> discussions and, and hear it was kind of fun, but, uh, a lot of the work I'm involved in, um, right now is, is, uh, not just uh, industrial and commercial work, uh, a lot of energy savings projects, ESG projects, and, but also um, utility work in particular in um, uh, wind turbines, solar, and, and a few other areas. So, uh, and, and on the volunteer side, um, the focus is IEEE, of course, which I've been involved in standards development and, and papers uh, since 1993. Uh, SMRP, which I became involved in in 2005, and then American Clean Power, which I've been involved in since uh, 2009. So now, uh, as of last year, um, the technical committee voted me in as vice chair, and I'm incoming chair, which will be a three-year stint uh, this September. Uh, That American Clean Power, those will be all of the standards supported by the industry. It's a trade association. Um, they used to be called American Wind Energy Association, but now covers uh, wind, solar, and uh, energy storage. And we're looking at uh, absorbing several other organizations as well. Right now, it's the world's largest trade association associated with uh, clean uh, clean energy. So I've uh, been involved in all that and, of course, still making calls on the Hill for workforce development, cybersecurity, infrastructure, in particular, because it's my specialty, it's it's electrical infrastructures, including the grid. All right. Excellent. So you're heavily involved with all the things going on with the grid. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about today is really clean power and the impact that's having on 
our grid supply, even potentially generation of the supply. There's lots of moving pieces here. And I don't know if, if it's all connected in a coherent way at this point. Um, what are your thoughts initially on the clean power movement, moving to clean power? Any concerns with grid generation supply, all those great things? Well, contrary to talking points on 24 hour news, no, not at all. <laughs> um, it's, it's actually kind of interesting because clean power in particular, things like solar and wind have been applied since 1985, 1984 uh, at utility scales. But those were smaller like quarter megawatt, half megawatt turbines. It wasn't until 2002 that we started introducing the larger turbines, and it wasn't until after that that it somehow became a political discussion. Uh, we knew back when I was at the Energy Resources Center at UIC, and in particular, this was my area of research, except I thought solar was going to lead first. So I was a little wrong. It's happened before. <laughs> um, but... Uh, uh, we, we, we knew that we were going to have to bring renewables into the energy mix just because of supply and demand. Um, the, with, through deregulation in the mid-1990s, you had the shutdown of uh, convention, a lot of what we call conventional plants. They started decommissioning older coal-fired plants and so on just because they were so expensive to maintain. And, and we still see those retirements now. And, and what's bothersome is, you know, people, you know, jumping up and down saying, well, our political this or that is what changed things. No, they were just too expensive to maintain. And they're now being, uh, they're now competitive, meaning they have to compete against other companies for cost of electricity. So fuel costs became a big issue. So we're, we're seeing a lot of that trying to level out. Um, in the meantime, the grid itself hasn't changed since the 1910s uh, with any major changes stopping after the 1920s other than communications. So we've come up with some variations for thing for voltage correction, um, but they're based on the same technologies we've always used. The challenge with that is as we're bringing in, well, we started seeing in the 1990s as buildings started putting in variable frequency drives and we started increasing the number of computers and everything else. We started introducing a lot of harmonics back into the grid uh, and other, other electrical uh, disturbances that had not been seen before. And it affected the reliability of not just local distribution systems, but the bulk power portion of the distribution system, which is referred to commonly as the grid. Um, so yeah, now we start bringing in, um, systems like, uh, wind turbines and solar. And in the early days, there were some issues with a couple of countries that had rapidly grown and saw some problems with being able to supply, uh, that those were lessons learned. And in the mid 2010s, meaning right around 2014 or 15, um, it was discovered that the controls for turbines and solar, and we knew this already, but I mean, really kind of discovered from a standard standpoint uh, through IEEE 1547 and the related IEC standards, that uh, you could control 
the tower controls or the solar controls in such a way you could stiffen the grid, meaning you could correct the voltage uh, conditions on the grid, whether those systems were actually generating power at the time or not. So often uh, you'll see that uh, wind turbines and, you know, they, well, the wind turbines, the, not just the turbine itself, but actually a, a turbine is a cell in a large battery, right? So you have, um, maybe you have a site that has 100 turbines on it. Um, the individual turbines, not the generator, the whole site is the generator. Um, they're just individual cells in that battery. So sometimes you'll have one area of a, a site not running the other time you do. But in the meantime, they're also adjusting the controls in such a way to correct power in that local area. So areas where the grid is soft um, and you have brought in some of these new clean energy technologies, they actually correct your power problems. However, my, and you asked my, my opinion, I'll, I'll give a, an educated response to that, is we are seeing the opposite of the grid, uh, the clean energy systems affecting the grid. It's actually the other way around. Um, the old style of building the distribution systems and grid, including uh, linear uh, inline tra capacitors uh, or VAR correction, which is a a combination of inductance and capacitive correction for voltage and long distance transmission lines actually causes a resonance back to um, turbines that causes uh, the generators to fail, causes the gearboxes to wear, and causes the transformers to overheat. Um, it's something called uh, subsynchronous resonance. It's not at a level where it'll break a shaft, but it's definitely at a level where it causes a lot of wear and tear on the machines. So that's that's kind of a quick summary uh, of, of what we're running into. Yeah, I think, so we have all those pieces too. And then I'm hearing about other issues with, you know, moving towards clean energy. And I'm going to, I'm going to clarify that before I proceed. But what I mean by clean energy is moving away towards fossil fuel. Mm-hmm activities right so as we do that we have to either come up with non-fossil fuel which is like you said wind solar uh water turbines can be all those wonderful things yep but we see companies moving towards degasification as well so not burning natural gas in boilers or uh, combined heat and power plants those types of things and as a result the electricity demand for those organizations goes up dramatically however getting access to the electrical supply or having a grid that could support all that degasification efforts is another challenge I'm seeing. Are you seeing the same thing? Absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, in the last week, uh, NREL and Berkeley National Labs both put out reports that there's 1.4 terawatts worth of data waiting to be introduced to the grid, meaning the power generation is either about to be built or has been built and is ready to be put onto a grid that's broken. There's um, limits and they're severe. We saw it in Texas uh, with the freeze in 2021, right? Um, Texas has islanded their grid, meaning that it's very hard to get power into that grid. So when they had a failure there, they lost a lot. 
Matter of fact, there's 246 deaths attributed to just that instance across four days. Uh, so, so um, yes, definitely seeing that. As a matter of fact, um, part of the rest of that issue is the present grid, let alone local distribution, is not capable of moving power from remote locations to local locations. And that's part of the, that was part of the whole idea behind smart grid. How do you control, communicate, and start making adjustments? The, the, the grid has to be flexible, has to be resilient, um, and it has to be able to adjust rapidly to changing conditions. It's even a discussion we just had in, um, in, uh, in an IEEE standard, 3001.3, which is on voltage in construction of facilities. And that is uh, the concern was brought up that, uh, you know, we're going to put this clean energy stuff there. We're not going to be able to start our large equipment anymore. And, and it's actually not the case. Uh, what's actually the case is you have to look at what the local grid, what the local distribution system looks like, let alone the grid and see if it's capable of supplying that power. Now, when I'm using the term stiff and soft, those are the technical terms. Stiff means that you have a lot of power ready. Um, transformers are not heavily loaded in the distribution system. They're good to go. Um, and soft means everything's overloaded. So as you start bringing on more equipment, voltage starts to vary significantly. Um, that means poor power factor conditions, things like that. So uh, if if we have an area that, say, um, operating on, let's say you have a plant that's three megawatts and another plant's put next door that's a four megawatt plant and the distribution system is not designed to handle that immediate demand, uh, you will start seeing voltage variations that are significant. One we're looking at right now uh, a plant, uh, we'll just say in the same area that started the Northeast uh, blackout before, it's still soft. Uh, we were studying uh, data on the revenue meter going into the plant uh, at, at, a, at a higher level than they normally do. We're using electrical signature analysis for that. And we started seeing voltage unbalances exceeding 7% going into the plant and voltage variations exceeding 14% meaning uh, you have a tolerance of plus or minus 10% on most of your equipment of voltage and you have very, uh, you have a maximum allowable voltage unbalance on three-phase systems of 5% before they start to fail. We're exceeding those values at that plant alone repeatedly, and that's on the local distribution system, and that's because their bulk power system is, is too light. Um, it's too soft. So... We have these issues with the larger grid, local distribution grids. Mm -hmm. How how are we expected to take advantage of this clean energy, clean power, if we don't have the infrastructure to support it? And I mean that from multiple aspects. You know, we got companies looking to degasify their operations. More and more electric vehicles are coming online. There's all these things happening. How... It, to me, it doesn't seem like we're in a position where we can take advantage of that stuff. And and the utilities have been struggling with this as well. Um, all the work we were doing at SMRP um, with uh, National Institutes of Standards and Technology, NIST, in um, smart grid and, and smart cities 
related directly to this. And the people sitting on those committees, the actual committee members, were all leadership from the power utilities, how to manage it. Uh, we're seeing several things, and, and there's actually a solution that's just happened, but we're seeing several things happening. One is a lot of companies have become their own power generation, um, meaning they become their own they have their own capability of islanding, meaning shutting themselves off from everybody else and supplying their own power. Um, we're seeing uh, the smart grid systems being used to go through relays and, and other systems to direct power to different areas where it can. And finally, the bigger solution was it took years, but we finally got um, uh I don't even know what they called the law in the end, but we'll just say the bipartisan infrastructure bill through uh, in the States. And, and that focused uh, and a significant amount of, of support was put in um, for converting from localized grid systems, meaning regional and, and private grid systems to a national grid. So that's that's been enacted, that's in place. That was the end of 2021. And we just kicked off the um, the Department of Energy study portion, and in the meantime, um, in the meantime, there's other uh, parts of that program that provide loans um, to the utilities to be able to build out and repair grid. It's uh, it's already been identified. Seventy percent of the grid in the United States is greater than 25 years old. That includes the distribution transformers, which can take 14 to 20 um, months to replace if one fails. Right. So and a lot of them are over 40 years old. And the lifespan or a design lifespan under the conditions from 40 years ago was a 40-year lifespan, and they're not seeing that. So yes, we have some huge thing, huge hurdles that have to be overcome. And the guide for that is that um, first, the, the initial corrections have to be put in place, as well as an increase in the size of the grid in the U.S. alone of 60% by 2035 based upon present projections. And that's to maintain where we are. And then by 2050, we have to be three times the grid structure we are now. Uh, the biggest challenges we have, red tape. So it's, it's a combination of, um, uh, you know, basically all of the... Uh, all the hurdles you have to cross to, to be able to connect all of the hurdles you have to go across to build up new lines, um, technology and technology improvements that have to be made. Um, and then of course the big one, NIMBY, uh, not in my backyard. So, uh, the biggest pushback we have seen, believe it or not, is not when green energy goes into, um, local areas. We're, we're actually seeing that, uh, uh, promoted more than anything um, because it it's income for farmers and ranchers and and other landowners right so so they make money off of that no it's actually building the the uh, power lines you know the 500,000 volt power lines and other systems and some of the new DC transmission lines that are going in place um, through um, through regions uh, because as we start to 
build out what we're now forming as a national grid so that if I need if I have power demands on the east coast that are not being met I can effectively improve that condition from the west coast right right now you can't you're stuck in your region whatever power supply is available there is what you get um so the 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 quote unquote plan <laughs> for for the national grid is is actually making it so that you can island different areas, different regions. There's all the cybersecurity issues. There's all the relay issues. Um, there's uh, uh, a number of other issues that have to be addressed as we build it out. But the idea, in order to get that reliable, you know, available power. And reliability is, by the way, defined differently than you and I define it in our industry uh, for electric power, right? They don't have to report unless you're out for such and such a period of time. But getting that bulk power from wherever it's being generated out to a remote location uh, is is critical because, you know, while a New York City um, is going to have challenges putting in from, from a demand standpoint um, – uh, for electrification of everything from vehicles to you name it, a rural area, meaning out in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, um, is having problems getting that power there just because it's not there, right? It's there. There's not. There's not enough support there to um, provide the energy for a, a smaller area because there has never been that level of demand. So, uh, yeah, so, so it's been recognized. Um, it's been delayed due to, you know, politics. Um, and, and, uh, you know, uh, we talked about this before we started, but I, I didn't want to get into it too much, but basically what's being presented to the general public, you know, the, the expansion of the grid is evil, but we already knew we were going to electrify. I mean, this is not something new. This is something that was envisioned by both Tesla and Edison in the 1800s. Uh, we're just now getting to it. Uh, and, and the challenge is um, uh, building the infrastructure necessary to do it. And, and I believe Canada is doing something similar. Um, I don't know. I've been more concerned about what's going on here, including our visit to the Hill a couple of weeks ago to discuss this subject. So um, it's, it's a challenge, right? Because yeah. to your point, they're not in my backyard. So not too far from my house, they want to put in a new, a new major transmission line to support greenhouses, not too far away, industry going on in this area. And everyone recognizes the need for that power. They just don't want to see another 500,000 volt line running through their backyard. Right? And we're in a fairly rural area, so there's not like it's a huge amount of houses to begin with. However, there's massive pushback, and because of that, that has a ripple effect where businesses can't open or we can't connect some of the um, local clean energy that we have, whether it's wind turbines or solar, because we don't have the lines to support it. And exactly. It's a, it's a ripple effect. It is. And and the I think part of the problem is the lack of general understanding by the general public. Um you know, they, they, it's hard. It's hard from a technical person standpoint. We get it, right? But from your average person, they don't equate to that large power line going by to plugging in their uh, laptop. You know what I mean? 
Yep. What's there at the outlet doesn't equate to that big line out there because they don't understand all of the intricate devices that are used to take that 500 kV or 264 or whatever, whatever the transmission power is, 115, you know, whatever these high voltages are down to that 120-fold output. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out iridicio.com for a free copy of their ebook. A Smarter Way of Preventative Maintenance. This ebook will allow you to review your current maintenance program and eliminate the non-value-added work you're doing, which is most likely causing you more downtime than it is preventing. www.iridicio.com Well, I think that from a consumer standpoint, general public, I think that's one challenge too. And you might have more insight to this than I do. The other challenge is, is do the utilities know what they actually need to ramp up for? No, no, and that's 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 extremely clear, uh, and 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 well discussed in the utility industry. It's it's a combination of things. Um, you know, as as we change leadership, it it changes. So you know, when you're talking about okay, um, we're going to electrify this neighborhood because well, I, okay, let's. A lot of the discussion these days, right? So we're going to electrify this neighborhood because Tesla put a, a, a we're going to bring more power to this neighborhood because Tesla put in a, a, a dealership there and everybody's into it and that neighborhood can afford those vehicles. So we know that we can expect that there's going to be an increase in demand there. Well, they've been surprised. Other neighborhoods where they didn't expect electric or plug-in vehicles all of a sudden had a higher demand because of electric and plugged-in vehicles. So um, all of our traditional methods of forecasting went out the window uh, because we don't have a history for this. There, there's nothing to work from. And, um, you know, you're familiar a little bit with, with machine learning, right? Which is basically looking at the past to forecast the future. We used to call it forecasting. <laughs> or, or, or for those of us on here that do um, predictive maintenance, it's predictive maintenance. <laughs> um, it's the same thing. As a matter of fact, a lot of the algorithms are the same. So, you know, when we sit down, we're starting to do the data science, looking at what's going on in populations. I'm doing a, a project like that right now, right? We're looking at populations and, and how things are affected and where we're going to do something. Um, we have to relate that to something having happened in the past, something evolved in the past. Technology growth has hit a point where I mean, we literally didn't have utility-scale green energy in place until 2002. So, so you're talking about something that's, and it's going to sound funny, is only 20 years old, coming from something that's been in place for more than a century, right? So we have a completely new paradigm using the, the you know, to age myself, the paradigm shift, right? So we have a whole new map on what we need to do to the point where the government's trying to fund projects where everybody's getting together going, what do we do? Um, and those are the frameworks that have been developed over the last decade that have just been completed within the last four or five years. And then, you know, and, and everything kind of went wonky with the pandemic. So we've been on pause for a couple of years, but a lot of the behind the scenes work continued. So, um, yeah, understanding where that power needs to go 
is driven one of two ways. One is the utilities and technology, and the other way has been policy, right? So now you're talking about you've got conflicting, sometimes conflicting stuff where you have, we're forecasting this, and the government's coming in saying, yeah, but we want you to do this. So now now the utilities have to address both. It's like building a bridge to nowhere, right? Um, is there actually something going to be at the other end of the bridge or is there? Well, there's that piece, right? So forecasting for neighborhoods, electric vehicles, that sort of thing. But then you also got to consider what are the industrial facilities doing as well? Are they going to degasify, remove natural gas fired boilers and put in electric boilers? That's a huge, huge impact on the grid and the supply required in those areas. Do, do the utilities have information on what the organizations and the manufacturing footprint and the industrial sites are looking to do as well? Or are they best, I guess, guessing what they're going to anticipate to occur? One word, Quebec. So um, the uh, what people don't often realize is you've got a province in Canada that draws most of its power from hydro that had primarily electrified, right? So heating and everything else um, in Quebec is primarily electrified, correct? Yep. So a reason why? A lot of power available. Tangential um, hydroelectric. Yep, yep, all from Labrador, right? So you have, you have that power supply and you have that capability there. We have a model, and there's models similar to that elsewhere in the world. Um, to date, places like the United States, with the power demand we have, there's only certain regions where you can get significant hydropower. Um, and that has a limit as well, right? So you have so much source, you have to build dams, you have to do other things. Um, building out everything else and building in, because we have lots of room still for for clean energy plants, a lot of room. Uh, the the problem we have, though, is for both solar and wind, which are our primary new sources right now, um, most of it's centered in the Midwest and South, right? So down right down through the center of the United States. And this was a discussion I had, <laughs> believe it or not, on LinkedIn with somebody. Um, they said, well, why don't they have more in Florida? Why don't they have more in this state? Why don't they have more? Well, because the wind maps don't support that and the sun maps don't support that. They, they've done the research. The work's done. We can forecast the 80-meter winds and we can forecast what we're expecting to see in clouds. So we have to have them remote and then we have to get that power, as you said, to those locations. And then we have to know where we need to build those lines. And um, as we have companies and factories that want to electrify, that means there has to be a closer relationship. And this is the section we're building out in 3001.3 right now is understanding what your electrical footprint is in the area where you're building your facility. If your project manager for that facility is not monitoring what is going on with the grid and what's going to happen because you're sharing that power with the public, you're sharing that power with commercial buildings, you're sharing that power um, with other factories that may be moving into the area and so on and so on and so on. If you're not 
looking at that and and trying to get a good forecast on what's going on, um, you're going to run into trouble. You know, I'm, I'm surprised we don't have more industrial engineers out there because that's exactly what they're supposed to do, right? So, um, so yes, as as you're looking at a plant, because we did this up at um, one of the General Motors facilities, uh, we had three. Um, landfills in the area and we discovered we were going to be allowed to to receive uh i don't remember if it was a purchase or or actually they were giving it away the um landfill gas for the boilers there right so so um there was a bunch of companies that all had to look at it all had to figure out the demand and then and then get that energy well now we're looking at the same thing with electricity how do you share that out how does the utility build for it Where's the funding going to come from? Um, because you you may be able to say replace your gas fired boilers, which by the way isn't the worst thing, but can, putting in your gas fired fired boilers to an electric boiler, um, the demand on that is going to be significant. You're talking about you know, oh at least doubling the size of your your supply power depending on the kind of plant. I mean, or even more so looking at um, building out your own um, generation. Now, the problem is you're replacing a gas boiler for most likely a gas-fired generator. <laughs> uh, there's not, not a large – and then even then, the infrastructure has to be there for that. Um, yep. So, yeah, we're, we're making major changes in how we do things, and – it's expected to happen based on public policy and and the general public pushing for this to occur yesterday. Um, the good news is, you know, a lot of us know that it's not going to happen at that pace. Um, there's an urgency that's being pressed, uh, but, you know, you have to make decisions. You, to do something that rapidly, there's going to be a lot of mistakes we see it in California with rolling blackouts when um, there's significant weather changes in a season, right? So, um, what was it? Uh, uh, during 2021, we had all those really weird weather patterns occur. Uh, so uh, they had not just um, the problem in in uh, Texas, but they had was it 2020 or 2021 where they had the rolling blackouts in California? Yeah, it was well, that's 2020, 2021, I think. Yeah, and, and there was there was the additional effect from the fact that most of the areas where you normally supplied power to, and most of the patterns that the system had been developed for, which was people going from during the day from remote scattered areas, meaning home to a gathering place, which means a building, you, you changed the distribution. And uh, not only was it a weather issue, it was a population issue. You started shifting population from centralized supply in order to do their, their work during the day to a kind of distributed supply in neighborhoods that weren't designed for it. Um, I know here in this area, we were seeing a combination of that and a combination of lack of, of access to um, internet services. It's only now that, that the local um, cable companies and other internet providers are building out the infrastructure in an area that may no longer need it. 
which is uh, away from the larger companies. So, um, yeah, as we're as we're looking at, uh, I know I wandered a little bit, but as we're looking at, um, it's probably because I'm thinking about this stuff all the time right now. But as we're thinking about how things are growing and how things are changing, and companies needing to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions for a whole lot of reasons, right? Um, for uh, everything from um, public relations to maybe being in an area where they're now trading carbon credits. Uh, and, and that's both an income, but it could also be an expense, right? So um, you have all of these different drivers pushing for a conversion over to electric because you can defer that. And in reality, electrical energy is efficient enough that whatever power you're using at the other end, um, almost 60% of it reaches, you know, something rather locally. And, and if we go to a national grid, the percentage drops a little bit, but the, the, the um, energy efficiency of the electrical system is much, much higher. So converting over from that electric or from that gas to an electric boiler becomes a whole new concept for that project manager. Um, instead of just saying, okay, we have, we know that at our point of common connection, we can do this. Hey, uh, utility, we want to add another transformer. And they go, oh, okay, that not a big deal. We got plenty of power and put in the second transformer. No, now it's because everything's being um, shared and the grid is old and the distribution centers are old. They're going, okay, the distribution center can't handle that. Now we have to find another location or build another distribution system. And then they have to talk to the bulk grid supplier and say, hey, do you have the capability of supplying that power? <laughs> and they have to in turn turn around and go, do we have enough generation available? And by the way, these are not instant communications because there are laws in place preventing some of that communication. I don't know if you knew that, but part of what's holding us back is, is um, laws that were written a long time ago um, to prevent um, to prevent a lot of bad things happening, we'll just put it that way. So uh, it was it was in response to monopolies. So all of the all of the laws that are in place to prevent monopolies, um, and even the the laws written in the 1990s for deregulation don't reflect what we're doing now. And and this is, by the way, a problem and a discussion on the hill. How do we get past? you know, the laws we put in before and get the results we're looking for instead of the unintended consequences, which we're, which we're working through now. I'm sorry, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but, well, it's, but it's not there's a, a lot it's, to it. Yeah, it's not a simple topic. Um, this is something we could probably talk about and by the sounds of it, you are working on day in, day out, trying to get your, get some sort of momentum with it or what we got to do. But it's a very complex and challenging topic that I think a lot of our listeners are dealing with. You know, if they have to upgrade a transformer, do they upgrade what their media forecast is, or do they forecast a little bit further with some uh, risks and go from a potentially like a 15 MVA to a 20 MVA to a 30 MVA, depending on what potentially they're going to make changes at their site? Because, like you said, some of these things are a year delivery. So yeah. if we got to make sure our forecasts are well at, are good at the plant level, because if not, we'll be replacing new stuff in two or three years as we continue to electrify. Well, and, and 
therein lies a big problem is the, you know, you remember back when a plant manager took over a plant and retired, right, from that plant. Um, you know, I, I saw this in automotive where you'd have a plant manager responsible for a plant for a decade or more. And then the next one was five years, the next one, two years. Then they were in and out of there in a month. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little bit, but a very fast turnover of leadership. So the, um, with, with specific goals, right? So what ends up happening is, well, a company, let's say a large corporation, because public policy is saying, okay, you need to set deadlines for 2025, 2035, and 2050, right? So plants, uh, corporations will make forecasting decisions or, or um, policy decisions related to, um, to those public pressures out to 2050. Like we need to convert over and have zero emissions by 2035. And um, the local plant is thinking in terms of how do I make my numbers this quarter, right? And on the books, they can look at capital projects, but what is the what do they look at as far as uh, their IRR and everything else? Are they looking at one year, two year, three year, five year, or are they looking out to 2035 and 2050? So if we want to start looking at the projects and start forecasting what we need, we have to be able to start tying the um, decision-making at the plant level to the decision-making at the corporate level and whatever they're tying their decision-making on, whether that be public policy or whatever else, you know, cause I, I know there's some companies out there I've run into them where they say, Oh yeah, we're making uh, this statement that we're going to be zero emissions by 2035, but that's a problem for the 2030s and nothing's really changing, but we're also seeing uh, companies that are looking actually honestly looking out that far. And um, we're seeing the direct results of that you know, project I'm involved in right now. They're making decisions where I'm going, okay, if this was five years ago, it wouldn't make economic sense. But with all of the changes in how things are being viewed, this makes sense. If this company is actually looking at not selling itself off, but being existent and actually meeting their goals in 2035. So um, there's variations in, in what you're going to find out there. Some do it for advertising reasons and some do it because they have an actual belief. And, uh, and that, that belief has to be able to change how the corporation looks at how they look at investments. And that goes right back to that is, do you invest in that larger transformer, ensuring that you have more power than you need available, which by the way, has a very positive impact on your electrical reliability anyways. If you have a stiffer system as a direct result to that, your equipment isn't going to fail as often for power quality reasons. And, um, so there's positive benefits to overthinking it, but we've been training everybody to think to a point where everything is exactly what you need over the last three or four decades. In the 1980s, I think, is really when it started to transition from beforehand where, you know, speaking of an electric motor, right, where a 100-horsepower electric motor was the size of your car. 
um, versus now where it could, you know, sit in the chair next to you. Um, or even in some of the hybrid vehicles like the, the Tahoe, when we built that one, it's 30 pounds. So, um, you know, the, the, the idea of making everything tighter and tighter and tighter has to go away if you want to think in terms of projecting out into the future. Now, I do that in commercial buildings, even in airflow and everything else where, you know, the, that was a big issue in the 1990s. Um, the Department of Energy was pushing everybody to right-size your equipment. Why? Because, say, at a, a commercial building, your, your motors are 40%. For your and your fan systems operating at forty percent, it's outside of the best efficiency point, and um, you know. But it's planned that way because if you reconfigure a space for a different customer or different um, uh, client for that floor, um, they might have a different airflow demand, and you have to design out for that. Well, we've gotten away from that deliberately. Now we have to go back to that in order to think uh, out into the future. Uh, that means overbuilding the grid. And it's been a twist. It, going back to clean energy, it's been a twist on the clean energy side. In order to meet the same level of reliability and availability of power um, to a region, you have to size your sites and your clean energy. And I think right now it, we're going from 115% to 120% now. So you have to size everything to 120% of the actual needs for that area. And that's projected needs. So, um, you know, and that's, that's been a challenge uh, because we're not taught to do that in school anymore. Um, you know, the, the old days of, of having the engineers, uh, you know, fudge factor tossed in there, that's gone. Um, and in reality, we need it back if we're going to do this and we're going to do it correctly. But I mean, it, it's, it's kind of a combination because it comes down to how accurate your forecast is. And, you know, and for, real engineering forecast comes out to be as accurate as weather forecasting. Um, Maybe we should get some financial forecasters. Those tend to be a little bit better, but you get my meaning. Yep. So, um, yeah, forecasting what our what we're what our actual needs are that becomes a challenge, and and there's no direct answer. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm forecasting a growing need for you know because I used to teach industrial engineering. This is exactly what we did, um, but. You don't see enough of them out there. You don't see, uh, you know, the the engineers that are are there that have that concept of looking at the bigger systems. Um, Three thousand one point three is is showing me what's happening on the electrical design part because everybody who sits and it's a global, by the way. We will have over a hundred people in the development of that standard at any given time. There's the core group that's required, and I'm on the core group, and then there's the larger group that's contributing, and that's over a hundred people from you know, every continent putting in information and the, the narrow scope of, of the thought processes on forecasting things is, is, uh, was eye opening. Um, you know, I'm a systems guy. I, when I looked at, uh, why towers were failing, I've done 3,400 towers worth of testing myself now, let alone other companies that have tossed us the data to, to evaluate. Uh, and then the feedback on a a large percentage of those on actual findings 
And that, that led us to going, okay, to go, okay, everybody thought it was this. It wasn't actually this. It was a much bigger scope. Well, what's causing that? That led us to look further out and do um, literature research and discover that there's been academic research on the grid damaging wind turbines since 2006, right? So, and, and as a matter of fact, two published books on it. So um, then uh, we went in and started looking and saying, okay, what does the data look like? And we went out specifically gathered data on uh, different regions and different towers and where they're located and said, yeah, we're having all these things going on. How do we make changes to that? Now we have to look at the other end of the, that bulk power and the local distribution and say, what's going to happen as we start expanding those electrical systems in those plants and neighborhoods? How is that going to impact the grid? How is your power use when you put in, say, you put in some electric boilers to replace gas boilers, how is that electrical use going to affect your neighbor? People forget that too, is whatever I'm putting into the system is affecting the plant next door and vice versa. This is a very large, complex problem, which is why yep. I'm glad people like yourself, the IEEE, and all the other organizations are out there working on this challenge because it is a large, somewhat overwhelming and daunting challenge when you start getting into it. <laughs> it was. It was, definitely. I, when I first uh, dove into it deeper than I was already, um, I felt like I was drowning. Um, but uh, as, as things are becoming sorted out, as more and more players are seeing it, as public policy is seeing this as a critical defense and life-related um, uh, uh, impact, um, you know, we're seeing the ability to, to overcome it. I, I'm, I have faith that we're going to do it. Um, you know, I, I have faith that we're going to be able to have the reliable and available power that we expect. I'm expecting a few bumps in the road, but, uh, I would say by, you know, within the next decade, we're going to be on top of it and moving forward. The DOE is projected their study is going to be done by 2000 or within five years. And it just launched a month ago. So, um, that's really fast, by the way, for, for an agency like DOE. That, that is great to hear. Howard, where can people find out more about you, get in touch with you if they want to chat about these topics further, learn more, what, what's the best avenue to do, to do so? I pretty much dropped all social media, but LinkedIn. So you can find me at LinkedIn under MotorDoc. Uh, if you want to go a social media route, I do answer messages. Um, and uh, I also, you'll find me also at MotorDoc, M-O-T-O-R-D-O-C.com. Um, and, uh, and empathcms.com. All right. Excellent. Well, Howard, I truly appreciate you taking the time today. I'll make sure to put links to all those things you mentioned, as well as links for, so people can get in touch with you. Thank you again for talking, uh, to me today about the clean energy challenges that we face. Thank you very much. I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. 
It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.